This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for being here. Great to have you on board today, as always. Phone lines are open at 888 900 3393. So, uh, as I was on the uh, uh, Buck Sexton with America Now. Uh, we had some breaking news in the form of oral arguments uh, at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Three judges listening to arguments both from the states that are suing the Trump administration and from the DOJ lawyer representing the Trump administration on this one. Um, and it is, it is fascinating to see this play out because... You got first of all, you got Trump, as I understand it, reading off today, uh, reading off the specific immigration law that uh, he thinks fall means it falls under his authority. Um, he said that the that he's issued this for the security of our nation, for the security of our citizens, so that people coming in can't do us harm. So Trump read out from parts of that federal outline. He said it was written clearly and beautifully. Uh, so, yeah, um, he says the courts are also so political. Here, play that uh, clip, Shimon. Donald Trump defends travel ban while addressing law enforcement leaders. Let's hear it. When you read something so perfectly written and so clear to anybody, and then you have lawyers and you watched, I watched last night in amazement, and I heard things that I couldn't believe, things that really had nothing to do with what I just read. And I don't ever want to call a court biased, so I won't call it biased. And we haven't had a decision yet. But courts seem to be so political. And it would be so great for our justice system if they would be able to read a statement and do what's right. And that has to do with the security of our country, which is so important. Uh, this is Trump engaging in preterizio, right? I, I could talk about how my opponent is a, a horrible drunkard and a terrible human being, but I won't do that, right? Trump's saying, well, I don't, I don't want to say the courts are biased, but it seems pretty biased to me. I'm not even sure that's preterizio. I think that's a, that's a Trump version of it where you say you're not going to say it, and then you just straight up, <clears throat> straight up do say it, which I think is a, a fair way to describe what happened here. So, you know, Trump is saying, look, this is as a matter of law, I'm right. They've already made some adjustments to this. You probably have already read or, or seen that those who are Iraqi interpreters, for example, will not be 
affected by this ban and and they have made some adjustments to it and the sweeping order from this federal judge based on the arguments that this is judge robart right so you got judge robart out in washington state who is one of a number of judges who has ruled against the administration on the executive order but he's the only one that ruled against the entirety of the executive order at least for now the way this works is they have a temporary restraining order the this appeals court is going to look at it to see what should happen while they prepare for a full judicial review so is the ban in effect until they decide overall whether the ban should be in effect that's more or less what's being decided right now. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. And as a matter of law, we've had Andy McCarthy on. We've had others on to address this as well. It's pretty straightforward. Um, the president, as commander-in-chief, has the authority to exclude uh, whatever illegal aliens he or she wants to. And that's it. Uh, this is a situation where the, the judges that are looking at this, and now I don't know what they're going to, I don't know what they're going to say. I'm expecting it'll be that the ban is revoked until there's a full, uh, either a full appeals court on bank review, or it goes to the or the Supreme Court decides to take this up. But I'm I'm expecting that the Ninth Circuit, uh, the three judges of the Ninth Circuit that had this phone call last night, uh, that they will rule against this. I could be wrong, but based on their questions too, it seems that they really do believe. And this is a difference uh, in judicial philosophy that has infected courtrooms across the country and, and really has changed the way. And this goes all the way up to the very top. You've got people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and others, Sotomayor and Kagan, who buy into this. There's, the Constitution is living or it needs to be an updated document based upon the, the trends of the day, which is to say that the <clears throat> which is to say the Constitution is not really a document. It's whatever you say it is. And when you see the questions that were asked, or you hear the questions, I should say, because it was just an audio, it was a phone call of the oral arguments last night. Um, when you hear the way that they're positioning themselves, it seems as though the judges think it's their position to rule on whether this is a good idea or not. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. You will recall from John Roberts's Obamacare decision, for example, uh, that he said that it's not the rule, it's not the role of the Supreme Court to save individuals, uh, to save the American people from the poor decisions made by their legislatures on their behalf. That's not what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. It's just supposed to decide on the constitutionality of an issue. And that is not the way that I think these federal judges are going to approach this. They're looking at this from the perspective of what is, um, what is a good policy. Um, and also, they're taking into account not what the executive order says or does alone. They're also looking at, or they've been asking questions about whether this is a, a means of trying to achieve a Muslim ban without calling it a Muslim ban. They're looking into the, <clears throat> excuse me, team. They're looking into the heart of the Trump administration on this and deciphering for themselves what the real intent here is. So, I'm expecting that this will be a defeat for the Trump administration and that at least for the next few months or however long it takes while this is officially reviewed. Um, but I do think that the Court of Appeals is going to keep the ban on the ban in place. I, I do believe that. 
And I think that what you're seeing here is that there will be no give. There will be no um, no moderation, no middle ground taken when it comes to opposition to the Trump administration. That the left, whether we're talking about the bureaucracy or the media, they are completely and utterly uh, on board and all systems go to thwart the Trump agenda. And I have to say, there's a lot of a, a lot of equivalency that you'll see drawn by those on social media and elsewhere about this whole process. There are a lot of people who will uh, say, well, look, Republicans were opposing the Obama administration. Republicans were opposing that. So how is this any different? Uh, this is different because they don't care what the rules or the laws are. They don't care what their protests uh, what they jams up in a city and whether they are destructive and whether they're, you know, I, I don't like to use terms like hurting discourse because the, you know, the left uses that stuff all the time. But it is it is hard to have a civil conversation with the other side when they really do believe that you're a bad person now for, for being a Republican. I mean, if you're still a Republican who is not really part of a, a fifth column of opposition to the administration and to the Republican Congress that's working with them, the left thinks you're a bad person. It's not just they disagree with you on this. They they really believe that you have some uh, moral deficiency, some sort of a moral failing. And that is how that is how they view these things. And that is the context into which I think we have to uh, to put all of this. So we're going to find out what the final ruling here is. Isn't it astonishing to see how much outrage can be generated? I mean, when you read the or you can read the. Um, the objections or, or look at look at the transcript, listen to the call of what the states that are saying that they have received irreparable harm by this executive order because they're in such you know Washington state is in such desperate need of uh, of Yemeni refugees or Somali refugees in the next 90 days. Is that that's what we're supposed to believe um, the desire that so many seem to have to make this country a de facto uh, open border state is becoming increasingly clear. And this is a divide that I think this whole Trump debate is really unearthing for all of us to see. And that is, there are a, a plenty of Americans now that the progressive Democrat ideology is, you know, if you don't, um, rather the progressive Democrat ideology is saying that there's really no difference between the way that the U.S. government should view citizens and non-citizens. I know that seems like maybe an oversimplification, and but ultimately they don't view that there is any moral differentiation to be made there. Perhaps you have to sort of go along for reasons of keeping the system humming uh, and, and understand that there has to be differences between citizens and non-citizens. But the, the Democrats can get their full outrage machinery into gear because the U.S. government is not giving visitors or non-citizens enough rights here. Um, and to people who are paying taxes, who register for selective service, and who have to abide by the regulations and, in some cases, very onerous, and I would even say unjust federal laws that exist on the books in this country, and who do all of that, and then see that the Democrat Party really makes no di makes no distinction between America, you know, in its mind. I mean, I know they have to as a function of the day-to-day -day existence of this country, at least for now. But they don't think that they owe anything more to a citizen than somebody who just wants to come here from somewhere else. They don't think that there's any real uh, 
distinction in their obligations. There's a distinction for political reasons because they still need uh, U.S. citizens to vote for them and they still have to carry on this pretense that they will privilege citizens above non-citizens. But countries around the, around the rest of the world do that. I mean, if I show up in France and I say, you know, I want working papers, I want a job. I mean, that's obviously the EU and a whole bunch of other things attached as well. But they I mean, laugh in my face. And they wouldn't say, oh, yeah, sure. You, know, you, want, you want French citizenship? You, you want to come here? You claim that you're a, a persecuted Republican minority in America? Uh, maybe maybe we'll, we'll hook you up. That's not how it goes. But you're seeing this distinction laid bare, and it's very troubling that there's so much more attention paid to the plight of non-citizen visitors or refugees in this country than a lot of other issues that you'd think maybe all citizens could get on board and agree are worthy of real attention and and fixing, not just attention so that we can all sit around and talk about it, but addressing them in meaningful ways. Uh, I, I think this is w one of these circumstances where even if Trump loses, he wins because the, the Democrats and the media have shown that they will they will go to the mat for seven countries that do have extensive problems with jihadism and terrorism uh, for the rights of their citizens to travel here and in some cases to uh, immigrate here under refugee or asylum status, asylee status. So, yeah, that's what we see happening. That's what all this fuss is about. And it's become it's the biggest news story in the country right now. And it's going to continue to be, I think, until we get the decision from that appeals court, from the, the three members of the federal judiciary that are in that appeals court. And we're going to have to see. Uh, I think that Trump will lose in court. I think he will win in the court of public opinion on this one. Because what exactly is the, is the horrible and irreparable harm that we will suffer if the order that Trump put into effect continues? It'll slow down visa uh, visa visits or people with visas from visiting this country for a period of time. That's what we're also worried about. I have to say, I don't see it as as the dire circumstance that so many in the media do. But it's it, there's a lot of virtue signaling to get in here. There's a lot of social justice warrior stuff that is also going on. Um, this is called a Muslim ban, and on the left now, uh, in in a fascinating in a fascinating circumstance. The left still hates Christianity and denigrates it at every turn uh, and at every possible opportunity. And they, they are now all in on being the advocates for, uh, for Islam, including political Islam, including Islamism. Uh, they will make excuses for it. And, and they will even try to whitewash or explain away jihadism and you know, violent Islamic extremism. Uh, they... Anyway, discussions that we can get, we will be getting into much, much more. Uh, 888-900-3393 on those phones, team. We'll be back right after this break. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Quite an interesting exchange uh, last night on the Sanders versus Trump. Uh, the, I'm sorry, Sanders versus Cruz, not Sanders versus Trump. Sanders versus Cruz debate that CNN put together. Um, let's play. Let's play the clip. Sanders lectures small business owner. This is interesting. Play it. My question to you, Senator Sanders, is how do I grow my business? How do I employ more Americans without either raising the prices to my customers or lowering wages to my employees? Rhonda? La Rhonda. La Rhonda. Okay. Uh, you own five uh, salons. That's correct. And you employ close to 50 people. Just under. And what kind of health insurance do you provide to them? I don't. I, none. You provide no health insurance to them? Correct. Uh, let me be. Let me give you an answer you will not be happy with, uh, and that is, I think, uh, that for businesses that employ 50 people or more, given the nature of our dysfunctional healthcare system right now, where most people do get their health insurance through the places that they work, I'm sorry. I think that in America today, everybody should have health care. So my question is, how do I do that without raising my prices to my customers or lowering wages well, to my employees? You see, the difficulty is also is, and I'm not much of an expert Answer on Answer the question, Bernie Burns. Dressing in general, <laughs> and certainly in Fort Worth. I'm just one of small businesses. <laughs> I know. But my guess is one of the problems that we have is there may be somebody else in Fort Worth who is providing decent health insurance to their employees. And they are in an unfair competitive situation regarding you. You can compete and maybe charge lower prices, get business, while they, on the other hand, may be providing decent health insurance. I think I don't you'll think find that a profit so the margin in my entire well, Maybe. I, I certainly don't know, you know about hair salons in okay. Fort Worth. But I do believe, to be honest with you, that if you have... What happened? Where did he, is that it? Oh, okay. I thought we had a little more there. Uh... Notice how Sanders has zero sympathy for the small business owner. He, I also think he doesn't understand how it works. That there are there's overhead costs, there's employee costs, you know, payroll costs, and people pay you money, and you got to make this all work, or else you got to close your doors and you're done. And no one, the government doesn't swoop in and save you. It's not how it happens for a small business owner. You're out there on your own. He has no sympathy for her at all. Why aren't you providing them with with health insurance? Um, probably because she can't afford to, Sanders. Probably because if she gave those employees health insurance, she would be operating at a loss and would have to close her doors. So, but he doesn't address the issue at all. And in fact, he turns it around on her and says, "Well, you have an unfair advantage over some other hair salon or hair care center or whatever it is that is providing insurance to its employees." Oh. Okay, so that's the way we're going to play this. She asked a very straightforward question, and he did not have an answer. 
look, this is all <laughs> we know what the problems are here. The fact that you have to have a job and you get insurance through your job is the root of the problem. Um, that's well, it's at the root of the problem. I should say it is the root of the problem. There's a tremendous amount of government regulation in the healthcare market as it is, but that you can't just go and buy insurance and read a straightforward policy and it says this is this is your policy. This is the sort of this is what's covered. This is what's not. You will pay X amount of dollars for this policy, and that you can't just do that is crazy. That's crazy. It's not that government bureaucrats should be deciding, making better decisions for your business, for you, and, and tinkering around the edges of what's included in packages and healthcare coverage and what's not. No, the, the reality should be that you can just buy health insurance to insure you against serious illness or uh, very expensive health situations. And everyone can be responsible for their own choices and decisions then. But you can't have that right now. You can't buy the plan you want. The plan has to be approved. Uh, they're talking about the individual market. Otherwise, you get whatever your company gives you. What if your company's healthcare plan kind of stinks? Plenty of companies did. When I was the NYPD, my healthcare was crap, absolute crap. And the federal government, the CIA, was great. And then when I finally left, there was a period where I had uh, NYPD civilian insurance, and it was practically no insurance. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, joins us now. Sean, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Always fun. Thank you, Buck. Uh, Let's start with the Elizabeth Warren situation. This has gotten the left all kinds of fired up. Let's hear it from her. She called into Maddow because, you know, she had to run to a safe space. She called into Maddow to say that she was red carded in the Senate. Play the clip. I'm not allowed to speak so long as the topic is Senator Jeff Sessions. Wow. I've been red carded on Senator Sessions. Wow. I'm, I'm out of game on Senate floor. I don't get to speak at all. The fact that this has happened over the words of Coretta Scott King um, puts almost a surreal cast on this. It seems hard to believe that the Republicans would want to make a national issue, uh, create a political national crisis around this nomination, specifically around the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, Did you know that you would be treading into this territory where they might be gaveling you and sitting you down uh, when you chose to read this letter? Did you think it would be this controversial? No, I did not. But I will say this. Oh, no, good heavens. Everyone. Right, Read Coretta let's, let's, Scott King's letter. Okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Sean, what's real, what's not here? Well, she really went on the warpath there, didn't she? I mean, she had no reservations about just going nuts there. Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, she's going to sit there and have a powwow with Rachel Maddow, and they're just having a, a, a cry session over it. I mean, yeah, she, she really put out the smoke signals there. And so the fascinating thing to me, is that there is longstanding Senate rule and president against impugning the integrity or character of a senator on the Senate floor. It's in Rule 19. It is abundantly clear. Um, And it includes uh, assassinating someone's character uh, by reading stuff other people wrote. She tried to basically launder these 30-year-old 
uh, smears against Sessions by saying, oh, no, I didn't do it. This other person uh, said that. So, you know, I'm not really responsible. This is outrageous. But th- there's really no functional difference between, between what she did and going and just printing out the comment section from YouTube or Daily Coast or uh, Breitbart or anything. And uh, you, you've seen the stuff that gets posted there and going on the floor and saying, well, so-and-so senator is a such-and-such-and-such-and-such. Uh, and those aren't my words. Those are the, those are the words of uh, this particular person. That you cannot have good faith debate in the Senate without basic decorum. And she willfully and knowingly and intentionally violated the rules of decorum. And that's why she was rebuked. And that's why she's no, lo- no longer allowed to speak on the floor in section. She forfeited her right to do that by violating the rules. It's pretty amazing to see CNN this morning. I should see if it's still up. Main story on their webs on CNN.com. Nevertheless, she persisted. I mean, they, they're just the GOP effort to silence Warren just amplified her message. Uh, they're trying to turn her into some kind of a, like I don't know, free speech martyr here. I don't know what they think she's doing. Yeah, and it's um, it, it's interesting. Having worked in the Senate, uh, stuff plays there a lot differently, especially when it comes to attacks like this, than it might in the uh, comment section of Daily Coast. Um Senators take the decorum pretty seriously. They, they're they happy to have pointed debate, you know, pointed argument. But when you go on to the Senate floor, which is sacred ground, and begin to launder and recirculate really vile, you know, decades-old smears against someone just for a short-term political benefit, it, it doesn't play well. Um, it, it, is, it is no surprise that uh, the Senate chose to rebuke her and remove her speaking privileges for what she did. And she did it on purpose. Um, th- this is clearly what she is. She, she is a, a demagogue of the highest order. Um, you know, she has a long career of not being uh, encumbered by facts or reality. And having realized that the Democrats were powerless to stop uh, Jeff Sessions as attorney general, they just decided to assassinate his character. And said, it's the same thing they did to Betsy DeVos. They couldn't stop her, so they decided to ruin her. What did you think of the oral arguments last night, switching gears for a second here, uh, uh, over the Trump immigration ban? Where do you think this is going, and what do you think of the, 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 the meat, the substance of the arguments that were offered up by both sides? Oh, gosh. Um, it, it's, I'm no good at court prognostication. I have no expertise there. Um, I, I think the plain language of the executive order is plainly legal. Um, he, he is executing existing law. Um, he's enforcing existing law, which has been um, an existing authority, which has been delegated to him by Congress. I think he's clearly within his bounds. And I will say I'm extremely disturbed by um, attorneys and judges going outside the four corners of the actual uh, executive order and saying, oh, well, we need to take what Rudy Giuliani said about this. Interview. That was my next question for you. I, I didn't know this was a thing now that you can you can you can say whether a law is constitutional or not based on what somebody who has nothing to do with the law allegedly said at one point. in time. I mean, it's crazy to me. No, it's it's nuts. Like, uh, you know, Rudy can say whatever he wants. He, he has no um, what his thoughts have no bearing on the actual text of the order. I mean, we are supposed to be a, a nation of laws uh, where we have rule of law. And the only thing that should be adjudicated here is the exact text of the executive order. And, and this is what I keep trying to tell people. And they say, well, well Trump called it a Muslim man. Well, Trump said this. Well, Trump said that. I don't care what he said, because what he said is not the language of the order. Uh, he says lots of things, often contradictory, often in the same breath. 
my sole interest as someone who's trying to figure out if policy is good or bad or legal or not is in looking at the actual text of the law and the policy. Uh, I find it just baffling that attorneys and judges are, are going to uh, Fox News cable TV commentary um, to help them determine whether an executive order is legal or not. It, it's insane. And I have to say the Washington Post uh, from, was this from the morning today? or is this, Yeah, it was from yesterday in the afternoon. Tweeted out on, on the DeVos uh, confirmation. Speaking of just, wow, uh, she she she's a billionaire who said schools need guns to fight bears. Here's what you may not know about Betsy DeVos. They have turned her into a into a an object of of hate on the left, and it just goes to show that they can do this to essentially anybody, can't they? I mean, this is a, a wholly unobje- unobjectionable woman. And I mean, she didn't say that schools need guns to fight bears. That is wildly out of context. It's ridiculous. Um, but but it, I think it's helpful to point out what exactly they're doing with DeVos. They view Betsy DeVos as an existential threat to them. And by they, I mean teachers unions who view uh, schools not so much as a, a means to educate children, but as a way to provide jobs for uh, union members. So they see in DeVos a threat similar to what they saw in Scott Walker. Now, Scott Walker utterly neutered um, unions in Wisconsin by saying, you know what, we're not going to have laws anymore that force people to be in a union just to get a job. And Betsy DeVos has come out and said, you know what, children in failing uh, school districts uh, who don't have money to go anywhere else should not be sentenced to, to go to a bad school where they're not learning anything just because they have to be born there and their family happens to live there. So she supports school choice and, and says, you know what, children, poor children in bad districts shouldn't be sentenced to a lifetime of garbage education. And that is an existential threat to unions. They don't want children getting quality education so much as they want uh, teachers union members getting big government paychecks and government-funded pensions. That is entirely what this is about. It is about nothing else. It's not about bears or guns, or this or that. It is about whether poor kids in bad districts ought to be able to have the right to go to better schools. And the teacher unions say no, and Betsy DeVos says yes. That's the whole root of the disagreement here. Now, Sean, you're a guy who knows the workings of the Senate and Senate procedure very well. It seems to me that Mitch McConnell has been pretty good at holding the line here, and they're going to get through all of uh, Trump's cabinet nominees. Uh, They can, according to your piece here, confirm uh, Supreme Court nominee Gorsuch uh, without the nuclear option. Does McConnell deserve a little bit of a a little bit of a high five? I know for a lot of conservatives, he's a he's an object of I shouldn't say scorn, but heavy criticism. Uh, Seems like McConnell's getting it done so far. I will uh, admit up front, I'm not a personally a big fan of his. Um, I, I could I take issue with lots and lots of stuff he's done uh, during his term in, in Republican Senate leadership. But when it comes to handling these nominations, and especially the uh, the Supreme Court seat that was vacated by Scalia, by holding the line, refusing to fill it, and allowing the election to take place, um, I don't have an unkind or an untoward word. Uh, to say about him. It it took a lot of skill and a lot of uh, courage to do what he did with the Supreme Court, and it paid off. And as a result, we're actually going to have a conservative in there to replace Scalia, as opposed to having a liberal Merrick Garland. Um, So so as far as the way he has handled the Supreme Court so far and how he's handled uh, these nominations, I I think it's been superb. Um, He's got a lot more work to do. We've got to repeal Obamacare. Um, We've got to, to peel back the gigantic layer of regulations that Obama 
uh, put into place during uh, his eight years in the White House. And so I'd say Mitch McConnell's work it, it isn't over. It's just getting started. But he's had a good start so far. Anything else you're working on at the Federalist or you want to give us a heads up to keep an eye out for? Oh, goodness. I, I'd say keep an eye out on, on the Supreme Court nomination battle. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's going to be big and it's going to be we're going to have a big decision probably sooner rather than later on whether the Senate's going to kill the filibuster entirely. Um, so stay tuned for that. You, what do you, I mean, I, I'm asking you to make prognostications here. I know you just like to analyze and not try to predict the future, but is that is that a is, is that something you think could really happen? They might decide to just pull pull out the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees to the, the to go to the even higher nuclear option, so to speak. Oh, it's, it's absolutely on the table. Um, I, I think it's less likely on Gorsuch. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, red state Dems um, that are up in 2018 might not want to climb out on that limb uh, and, and filibuster and force a nuclear option on Gorsuch, especially since he's, he's filling a conservative seat. I think they may uh, keep their powder dry for the next vacancy. Um, so I, I think it's a distinct possibility that Republicans get 60 votes for cloture on Gorsuch and the whole nuclear option thing is academic. But there will come a time during Trump's term, and it might be now, it might be later, where there will be serious, serious internal discussion among Republican senators whether they need to just destroy the filibuster altogether. And, and I hope for the good of America, for the good of the Senate and the good of uh, conservatism, uh, they preserve the filibuster because they don't need to get rid of it to confirm justices. Last last question for you, Sean. We'll let you go. I know you're a busy man. Uh, the Democrat strategy in the Senate against Gorsuch is going to be what? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's going to depend entirely on what those uh, handful of red state Dems up in 2018 want to do. Um, because the, the risk for Democrats here is they, I'm not sure they can afford to go nuclear on Gorsuch. Um, because they're going to lose, they're, they're going to absolutely lose Democrat votes. They're probably going to lose Manchin. Um, they could lose Tester, Heitkamp, McCaskill. They can't get too far out on a limb bashing him when they know uh, some of their most vulnerable members may well support him. Um, so I, I think you'll end up seeing from the leadership, from the more hardline people, uh, you know, their typical Sturm and Drang and uh, Parade of Horribles. But as a as a caucus, I I expect it to be a little more muted than what we've seen on Sessions and, and DeVos. Sean Davis is co-founder of The Federalist. Read his latest at thefederalist.com and follow him on Twitter at S-E-A-N-M-D-A-V, Sean M-D-A-V. Sean, our buddy, thank you for calling in, man. We'll have you, uh, have you back soon. Thanks for having me, Buck. Have a good day. You too. Team, phone lines open, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, I knew that Gavin McInnes, uh, whom I've done Red Eye with before and, and is a, a very, very nice, very, very smart guy. Um, I knew that he had had some trouble at, at NYU when he went to give a speech. I, I had seen vi- a video and I, w- I was going to play it on air here, except there were so much profanity that it would have just been beep, 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 beep. I mean, it's just this NYU professor yelling and completely freaking out over uh, Gavin McInnes coming to speak there. 
and they were calling him a Nazi and saying, Trump, go away, uh, as though he's like a member of the Trump administration, which he's not. Well, Gavin knows that he says things that are going to rile up the left. He says things that the left would consider controversial. Um, and sometimes he really he really nails it. I, mean, I have to say, if you haven't, uh, I think he has a show on the rebel.tv uh, and, and sometimes he really uh, gets it gets it going. But I I didn't know that he was uh, trying to speak at NYU and someone bear maced him. Someone actually from the crowd snuck up. I just saw this this video uh, where he's doing an interview and someone snuck up from the crowd and sprayed a chemical right in his face. You know, I, I have to say and he, he points this out in, his, in this interview I see. And I'm going to ask him to come on the show tonight to talk about this. You think about that for a second. I mean, you're going to give a speech at a college. You're just going to share ideas. You're not hurting anyone. You're not threatening anyone. You're just, you should be welcome of the college community, you would think. And someone sprays something in your face that causes you intense physical pain and burning. Uh, you know, he said, you don't know if right away well, what this chemical is. You don't know if you're going to go blind. You don't know if someone sprayed acid in your face. You you don't know what's happening. All you know is you've been you've been sprayed with mace by someone for not you're not doing anything. And this is at NYU. This is a a a couple minute walk from where I live. I I live right near NYU, and that this sort of thing happens, and gets such such little media cover. Could you imagine for one second if I don't know pick an MSNBC host you know pick someone on the left went to give a speech at uh, Hillsdale at a conservative college and students with masks on all dressed in black maced that speaker it would be a national news story uh, that that this didn't get any uh, coverage really at all is is astonishing even given the biases we know exist with the left I mean this is just crazy so we'll see if we can get Gavin on tonight and tell us about what happened at NYU but this was just bonkers um all right, team, we've got a lot coming up second hour. Some fantastic guests. Stay with me. Back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me as always. We are joined now by Stuart Taylor Jr. He is the author of The Campus Rape Frenzy The Attack on Due Process at America's University. Stuart, thank you for calling in. Thank you for being with me, having me. Absolutely. So, uh, so tell everybody what the what the book is about. Uh, this is something that deals not just with what's going on on campus, but federal government policy. In fact, the White House and President Obama himself had quite a hand in this. What happened? Yes. 
Well, for decades, there's been building a, an extreme feminist movement to basically presume every guy who's ever uh, accused of any kind of sexual misconduct by a woman presume his guilt, and also to presume it to be a crime, even if it's clearly not a crime, you know, even if it's just conduct that was consensual but later regretted. The Obama Education Department created in 2011 and since, and the Obama, Trump administration has now inherited, a deeply wrongheaded and costly regime of federally directed regulation of almost all sexual activities on university campuses and often beyond. It's been done in the name of protecting college women from sexual violence, which is a noble cause if it's done properly, uh, but it hasn't been done properly. The Education Department's Office for Civil Rights has basically forced thousands of higher education institutions to revolutionize their disciplinary processes for alleged sexual assaults. And it's led to dozens, maybe hundreds, of terrible injustices against falsely accused young men. Did you come across the statistic that uh, is often quoted, and did you did you get a chance to dig into some of your uh, other statistics that I'm sure campuses put out there? But the one you always hear about is that one in five women will be sexually assaulted on campus. Uh, that, to me, just sounds unbelievably high in the sense of I do not believe it. Well, I don't believe it either, and of course, I don't think any sane person would believe it, given because we have, we've all been around. But we also, in our book, completely uh, dismantle it, as others have done before, completely discredit it, and show that it uh, that it comes from bogus surveys done by people, private people with agendas, and picked up by the Obama administration, including President Obama himself, has quoted that number. Uh, but in fact, the best federal statistics show a tiny fraction as many women, uh, too many still. Uh, I think about one in a hundred college women uh, raped while they're in college and, and uh, about as many more subjected to some other form of sexual assault, a lesser form of sexual assault. Uh, but that's a small, small fraction of one in five. The one in five comes from surveys where they, first they never ask the woman who's being surveyed, were you raped? They never ask, were you sexually assaulted? Now, that's what you would ask them if that's what you wanted to know. But the people who take the surveys know that the answers would be a tiny fraction of what they want, so they avoid that question. They ask questions such as, have you ever had sex when you were drunk? And if the answer to that section is yes, they check the rape box. Have you ever had sex when you really didn't want to, uh, even if you didn't tell the guy you didn't want to? Uh, and if the answer to that is yes, they check the rape box. That's how they get the phony numbers. The Obama administration had to know that when they were running out there with that statistic. But I guess they just didn't care. The narrative was too important to let the facts get in the way. That seems to be yeah, that seems to be it. I mean, I think uh, I, I think it's really quite appalling that a man who you know who knows uh, how to deal with facts as uh, as intelligently as President Obama does uh, was spouting this false propaganda. Uh, but he was doing it, and others in the administration, and, and a lot of college leaders are doing it uh, because the media, as well as extreme feminists and the Democratic coalition, as well as a lot of uh, left-leaning academics, are committed to wildly exaggerating the amount of rape that goes on on campus as part of a power play. Now, what are you looked into um, a number of these cases. What are some of the commonalities uh, of the injustice that these young men, we can assume they're young men in this context, 
uh, these young men are, are suffering on campuses. Uh, what are some of the procedures that they go through and some of the lack of due process protections that they have to handle? Sure. Well, first, a lot of young women, um, you know, they, 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 they really occurred to them, didn't occur to them they were unhappy after some sexual experience. So it didn't occur to them in a lot of cases that they were raped because they weren't in many cases. But then there are university of bureaucrats who hear they were unhappy about some sexual experience who then persuade them, oh, if you were drunk, you were raped. So you first you get a lot of cases in the system where, uh, in you know, in the college kangaroo court system where, where the woman didn't really, it wasn't really her idea to, to phony up a rape claim. It was uh, She was pushed into it by campus bureaucrats. Once in the system, the accused guy has no right to a lawyer, no right to see the evidence against him, no right to know the details of the charges against him, uh, no right to uh, uh, take enough time to do his own investigation, no right to cross-examine his accuser, no right to an impartial panel or decision maker. And so they're thrown into uh, courts made up of uh, decision bodies, made up of people who are totally biased against them in the first place and who have been trained to assume that all males or almost all males accused of sexual misconduct are guilty. And they, you know, they never really have a chance, even if they're innocent. I mean, not that every single one gets found uh, guilty by the college, but a very high percentage get found guilty and a very high percentage of those are innocent. What are the uh, what are the recourses that are open to these men who go through these tribunals on the on the campus, uh, which is parallel and separate from the criminal justice system, right? So they just have these campus uh, these campus courts. I don't know what we'd call them or these campus. Uh, it, these and campus it varies. Sometimes they're sort of their panels. Sometimes it's three or four faculty members or bureaucrats. It used to be students, but the students didn't find guys guilty often enough for the people who are running this show, so they've gone away from having student panelists. Sometimes it's a single person, a single sex bureaucrat who's, uh, who acts as judge, jury, investigator, prosecutor, handles everything from start to finish. The guy's, hand, the guy's fate is basically put in the hands of one person, usually a very biased person. Uh, and, and this is part of, although the Obama administration hasn't quite, didn't quite order that process, they've certainly encouraged that process. And I, I got to ask, I mean, for the people that are found guilty in these situations, uh, the, the consequences for them, I know that there may be this moment where we think to ourselves, well, it's not like the campus can lock them up. But if you get expelled for sexual assault from a, a, a college or university in the country, very hard for you to continue on with a normal life after that. I mean, the consequences are severe, even if you're never found guilty in a criminal court of law. You bet they are. Now, you know, sometimes these things are confidential, so the word doesn't get out on Google that you've been kicked out for rape, but the word certainly gets around, you know, through the campus gossip mill, through social media. It's very hard to get into another college. Uh, most of the guys who are disciplined in this way can't get into another college, or at least not one that they, they you know, that, that they really want to go to. Uh, it can be very hard uh, in the job market, certainly if you ever want a job where you need a security clearance. 
uh, it makes that impossible. And there are terrible uh, psychological traumas inflicted on these guys, as there are, by the way, on women who are genuinely raped. The traumas are fairly similar. Uh, depression, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, sometimes even suicidal thoughts, sometimes attempted suicides. So a lot of times these guys uh, these guys' lives are ruined, at least ruined for several years and maybe ruined for the long run. Have some of them been able to restore their, well, I mean, I don't know if restoring their reputation is even possible, but at least re- restore some sense of, of of justice after the fact? Are they able to sue? Can they sue the campuses? Have they been successful yes. in that? Of course, the outstanding example of people who were completely vindicated very publicly, uh, they, and they eventually sued, but they were vindicated finally by the criminal justice uh, process, were the three falsely accused Duke, Duke lacrosse players a decade ago, and Casey Johnson and I wrote a book about that that sort of uh, uh, led to the one we did on this. But there have been about 100-plus uh, young men who say they were falsely accused or uh, wrongly uh, found guilty by colleges who have gone to court to sue the colleges, and uh, some win and some lose. Um, usually the ones who lose don't lose because they were found actually because the courts didn't believe their stories. They were they lost because the courts just didn't think it was their business. Some judges just uh, quite wrongly, I think, don't think it's their business to, uh, to supervise college discipline. And that that reluctance comes from years and years ago when college discipline was about things like plagiarism, which is sort of, you know, you can see why the courts don't want to get into whether somebody committed plagiarism. But now we're talking about somebody who's being found guilty by a college of something that is, in fact, if true, uh, a terrible crime. And, um, and the courts should much be much more active in policing how the colleges do that. One more for you, Stuart. And uh, Stuart Taylor is the author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. It just came out in January. Uh, Stuart, you also wrote uh, Until Proven Innocent, right, about the Duke lacrosse case? That's right. Casey Johnson and I uh, did that, and that was a revelation in terms of the grotesque unfairness. Now, this was not a campus disciplinary process. It was different from most of what we write right, about. It was criminal justice system, book. yeah. Yeah, that was the criminal justice system. And in that case, the criminal justice system was perverted by a rogue district attorney who was rightly disbarred in the end. But the common common thread between what happened then and what's happening so much now is is that the, 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 the professors, um, most of them, the college bureaucrats at Duke, the national media, the local media, all rushed to judgment against the accused young men, all assumed that they were guilty, all, all uh, smeared them as terrible people, and even as the evidence of their innocence became stronger and stronger and stronger and eventually overwhelming, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these guilt-presuming people uh, never quite uh, backed off. Uh, you know, sometimes they quieted down after a while, but they never said it. They were sorry. Stuart Taylor Jr. is co-author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. Get it on Amazon now. Stuart, great to have you joining us. Thank you for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Bye-bye. Team, we'll be back right after this break. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network.
listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by John Kovich. He is the rock and roll historian and professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, John, thank you very much for calling. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So tomorrow, February 9th, is the marks the first appearance, the anniversary of the first appearance of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, yeah. Quite a moment for rock and roll in this country. Yeah, I think it's hard for um, maybe a lot of younger people to understand how influential the Ed Sullivan show was back in those days on Sunday nights. But, I mean, if you think of how many people watched Lady Gaga at the Super Bowl, that kind of gives you some idea of how big that performance was. And you are a rock and roll historian. Give us just some of, for people who are listening, what, what is the history of rock and roll? What is the background? <laughs> Well, I mean, those of us who who focus on the history of popular music all have our specialty areas. Uh, Mine is the history of rock music, and um, mostly we're we're typical musicologists who might otherwise study the music of Beethoven, Brahms, or Duke Ellington, but instead we chronicle the history of rock, trying to pull apart um, legend from actual fact and try to get as accurate a history and an accounting of the history as we possibly can. And the first, if if someone asks you the 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 Godfather of rock and roll, the first great rock and roll band, the first great, you know, what are some of the answers that come to mind? I mean, what if you're tracing this back? Where where did rock and roll really find its birth? Well, uh, it really gets started in the early 1950s in rhythm and blues uh, with a lot of the scaled down groups, the jump blues groups um, coming out of Louis Jordan. Uh, but really, we usually talk about 1955 as being the key date for the birth of rock and roll. And in that era, the, the first couple of years after 1955, you got to think that Elvis Presley is the is the biggest thing there. He was just a ginormous star at that time. And, you know, kind of a dangerous guy at that time. I mean, we often think about Elvis Aloha from Hawaii with scarves and all that as being relatively harmless. But back in those days, uh, he was a threatening young singer of rebellion. Where does the name rock and roll come from? Well, it probably comes from the black community as a synonym for sexual activity. Oh, I was unaware <laughs> of that. Yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, but but the person who claims to have coined rock and roll is Alan Freed, the famous disc jockey who started in the Cleveland area and ended up in New York. Uh, and he, he called his show the Alan Freed's Rock and Roll uh, Show. And so he, if, if he didn't come up with the word, he certainly popularized it and made it what it, uh, what it became in the culture. Oh, look at that. A radio host. We're playing an essential role in the spread of culture. Um, well, so radio, radio is crucial to the history of rock music, uh, really up, uh, up until the advent of the Internet. I mean, radio and access to radio made all the difference in why certain styles unfolded the way they did, because it's all commercial music, and um, you can't have successful commercial music unless you can find a way to get it to people, to advertise it. And radio, uh, really, until the advent of MTV, where it had some competition, radio was where it was truly at. And if somebody asks you for the most influential, see, now I know this is going to get into opinion more than, than history or, yeah, or, yeah. or scholarship, uh, but the most influential rock bands of the 20th century, the, the top five, what would they be? Well, you got to put the Beatles right up there. Um, sometimes the groups that had the greatest success aren't the ones that end up being 
most influential over the long run. But in the case of the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, those key group from the 60s, maybe somebody like Led Zeppelin, the Eagles uh, in the 70s, Michael Jackson, Prince, uh, Madonna in the 80s. Those groups really were big at their time, in their time, and continued to influence later generations of musicians. And do you have a do you have an all time favorite uh, performer or band, or do you, uh, do you do you like to stay above that fray because you're a scholar of rock and roll? Well, we're supposed to stay objective, and uh, when I teach my classes, I, I I tell my students by the time you we get through this class, you shouldn't be able to tell which groups I like and which ones I don't like. But um, on the personal side of it, uh, I'm a big Yes fan, and I am just as happy as can be that they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Probably about 20 years later than they should have, but better late than never. Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin? Which one? I got to ask the question. I'm more of a Led Zeppelin kind of guy, but I really respect the Rolling Stones. All right, all right, fair enough. I had my college roommates were in a band, and that was a that was a, a fierce debate among among them. It was uh, <laughs> yeah. who who was more important in the in the pantheon of rock and roll greats, the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin? I think there's a generational thing too. I think uh, my generation tends to be more Zeppelin, and the one above me tends to be more Rolling Stones uh, based. But nonetheless, here we yeah. are. Uh, what, what do you, let me just ask you this before we uh, come into a break here. What do you think of the status of rock and roll in America right now? It seems like it's is how is it doing? Well, I have to say that the the music scene itself has become enormously fractured, and the internet has really helped with this because whatever you like, you can find that little place on the internet that caters specifically to that. So, would it be possible to bring as many people together around a performance by Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan or the Beatles on Ed Sullivan as it was back in 1956 or 1964? Maybe not. Even those Super Bowl performances tend not to break careers, but rather to reinforce already successful ones. So I see the music world as being very splintered um, and rock as being one of those those shards uh, and doing pretty well, but not the way it was really back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, where it was a lot more central to the culture. If somebody were to take your class, do you guys actually go to a rock and roll concert together as part of the syllabus? Well, uh, well, I'm here in Rochester, New York, which is not exactly the live music capital of the world. <laughs> so we depend an awful lot on video. But I have a lot of students who perform in rock ensembles, both uh, in, in at school here um, as student activities and also part of a course that we offer. We have a, a course where just like you could take orchestra or string quartet, you can take a, a course where you put together a rock band and do tunes. So we really focus on getting the students to perform. All right, very cool. Professor John Kovach of University of Rochester. He's a rock and roll historian. Thank you, sir, for joining. We appreciate it. All right, Buck, my pleasure. Thanks. Team, hitting a break. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Dear, we're joined now by Matt Welch. He is editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Matt Welch, our buddy, what's going on? How you doing, man? You know, I'm all right, you know? Chilling like, chilling like a villain, you know? That's something that people used to say in the 90s. I'm going to bring it back. 
Um, by the way, we just we just asked somebody a super tough question. I'm going to pose to you. Yeah. I don't think it needs much context or explanation. Stones or Zeppelin? Stones. Uh, it's, Look at that. Uh, it's uh, it, it's it's tough. I'm currently on the kind of a Zeppelin kick, but what the Stones did between '68 uh, and '73 is uh, a level that uh, Zeppelin couldn't quite ever match. And just so everybody knows, there was a time when our libertarian friend Matt Welch was not just uh, an intellectual man about town, but also had longer hair and was known to play a little guitar in Prague like some sort of European traveling hippie, correct? I have played the Rolling Stones the, the song Lovin' Cup off Exile on Main Street at probably a half a dozen different weddings, for example. Nice, dude. See? Look at you. Yeah, that's right. You you bring Matt Welch to your wedding, good things happen. All right, I want to, can I talk to you about a couple of pieces up on Reason dot com? I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's start with this. Uh, I mean, this is just this is just one of those things that you have a, a tough time believing, and you read it, you go, "I guess it did happen." Cops mistake dad for kidnapper and hold him at gunpoint because they've never seen a Tesla. What happened here? <laughs> Yeah, so Teslas, uh, which are great and strange and wonderful cars, apparently have a back seat in which, a back-facing back seat, which uh, we used to call back in the old days uh, the back of the station wagon when I was growing up, and it was the most awesome place to sit. But it's a legit, like, uh, outward-facing seat, and so the dad put his kid in a car seat, as far as I'm aware, uh, in the outward-facing back seat, and, and there were a couple of cops looking on, looking at this $75,000 car and thinking, that must be a kidnapping. It looks so weird. My brain can't compute it. So we're going to uh, uh, register it as a kidnapping, and they uh, they pulled him uh, pulled him aside and and uh, and gave him the the, the the run through because they were unfamiliar with the mode of transportation that he was using. I mean, if you're going to detain and terrify somebody because of the vehicle they drive, it should obviously be a Prius, not a Tesla. Although I know it's a similar idea. Uh, you know what? Or a, uh, a used a Honda Civic because uh, screw those cars enough already. Although that's uh, that's talk about a '90s reference. That's a, a full on mid '80s reference, and also a reference to a car that I used to own. Um, so uh, hopefully the, uh, nice. the cash for clunkers got rid of those once and for all. My first my first car uh, was a was a, a a gift from my parents. It was a wood paneled station wagon with I think it was uh, eighty thousand miles on it. And uh, it was referred to by my my friends and classmates as the shagging wagon, uh, but it was in fact not a car that if one were trying to use the vehicle for the purposes of attracting the attention of of uh, eligible ladies, I'm not sure the wood paneled wagon uh, wagoneer style is the way to go. But nonetheless, uh, it was it was tongue in cheek on that one. So uh, tell me about Santa my- Monica evicting. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. I'm just saying. Nor was my police auction Chrysler uh, K car uh, uh, either uh, with a uh, advanced skin disease problem. So it wasn't exactly uh, Babe Magnets, but it uh, it uh, serviced the need uh, at the time for sure. Well, you know, I got I got to tell you that you know, everyone, it's all it's all fun and games with the wood paneled wagon until you need to move you know some some heavy furniture on campus, and then and then all of a sudden Buck's pretty cool. You know, then he was like Mister. Mr. Fancy uh, Buick Roadmaster guy. You know, I don't know if those of you who see that's what I had a Buick Roadmaster, if you guys really want to know, which is quite a vehicle. Um, it, it, it looks, it's a little bottom heavy. Uh, and yeah, not it, it handles, by the way, uh, the way I would assume 
a a an overburdened uh, truck carrying like food and fuel in the third world on dusty back roads. It handles sort of like that. So you know, if, if you go a little too hard in one direction, you sort of skid around. Anyway, good times. Uh, Santa Monica has evicted Airbnb. What is going? On? So wait, Airbnb. Tell people about Airbnb. I'm not sure everybody listening even knows what Airbnb is, and then tell us what Air- happened. Airbnb is, uh, if you own your house and want to rent it out uh, to a stranger for a weekend, you put it up on Airbnb uh, and you rent it out to a stranger for the weekend. Uh, or if you can rent it out all year if you want to do it. It's just a private kind of using your own property as you see fit, making money off of it. And then as a consumer, you get to go to cities and pay a little bit less than you do for hotels out there. And naturally, uh, the, mo- the more regulated of our uh, cities out there have been the ones uh, that are the most allergic to this uh, practice of people doing what they want to with their own property. And so now we have it that Santa Monica, which is uh, fondly known by my fellow Southern Californians as the People's Republic of Santa Monica, uh, famous for all kinds of incredible uh, laws, including in some places you can't smoke in your own house. Uh, uh, they uh, banned uh, Airbnb uh, for the most part, with very few exceptions uh, there. So it now it is officially easier to rent an Airbnb uh, uh, apartment for a while in uh, Cuba, in Havana, Cuba, than it is in Santa Monica, California, which is a you know very nice beachfront uh, community. But uh, in the name of of uh, I, I think the, the the idiotic way that they couched it was they did this in favor of affordable housing because nothing makes housing more affordable than artificially telling property owners that they can't make more money using their own real estate. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch you into Welch wonk mode now for a second. Not that you haven't already been there, of course, but I want to talk about your piece. Meet the free traders who don't like global trade agreements. Who, who are these free traders who don't like global trade agreements, and what's their beef? Uh, well, uh, people like Daniel Hannon, the, the great and very eloquent British uh, MP, uh, Ron Paul, some of our libertarian friends, Thomas Massey, another libertarian Republican. There are quite a few people over the years who have said, hey, I'm all for free trade. I just hate the WTO. I hate NAFTA. I hate these things. And they have pretty good arguments against them, which is that you're giving up a little bit of your sovereignty here. You're letting far-off bureaucrats write rules. And some of those rules are pretty arcane and bizarre, including in the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which I just hear now they're uh, thinking about passing a TPP-1 that Australia is trying to push through. Like, now the Trump's out of it. Uh, the rest of the countries are, are starting to rally. So these people for years have stood outside our, uh, our you know, post-World War II ongoing project of, and by our, I'd say, sort of the United States and, and kind of the liberal democratic West has recognized that it's better, not worse, to gradually lower tariffs worldwide. That way you bind countries together in peaceful commerce and transaction, and you get people out of poverty quicker uh, in places like China and India, which has been a spectacular success. But there's always been, there have always been free trade critics, not just critics of free trade, but people who consider themselves to be free trade, but they just don't like all this bureaucracy and all these other kind of global institutions. So the point of my column was to say, to remind these people uh, that, uh, you know what, for the first time since forever, the ball is in your court. You know, Ron Paul was against every free trade agreement just as much as Bernie Sanders was, but he would, he would couch it in, uh, well, you know, uh, 
uh, at least uh, uh, you know, we're doing this for reasons of, uh, of sovereignty, and, I'm, and I, I really like the principle of free trade. So now with Donald Trump, with Brexit, which a lot of free trade uh, Brits I know were totally in favor of Brexit, uh, because they did, they disliked uh, the European Union and all of its bureaucracy about cucumbers and this kind of stuff. All fine and well. Um, it's also important for Americans to realize and other people to realize that the European Union was actually, in many cases, the most successful free trade and privatization entity that the modern world has ever seen. And I know that cuts against popular uh, thought, uh, but in order to even uh, have all these countries get into union together, they all had to sell out their their, uh, state-owned airlines, their state-owned TV stations, and all this kind of stuff. So what my column does is just sort of acknowledge this moment and say to the Daniel Hannans and the Ron Pauls and Thomas Massey's more uh, accurately of the world, it's like, okay, your side won. The side that says we're all about nationalism and sovereignty instead of these transnational globalist Davos, Davos people. Um, okay, your side won. I hope that you're exerting your influence over the populists you have hitched your wagons to to continue reducing tariffs, not uh, increasing them. And I have my doubts about whether that will be successful. As a libertarian, a few weeks into the Trump administration, how are you feeling, buddy? How are things going? It's a weird, weird time. Uh, I, I might mention this to you before. I, first, I'm not. I'm, I'm no fan of Trump. Uh, I don't like his authoritarian uh, tendencies and his big government uh, tendencies, which are legion. Which, uh, we've seen in, uh, in both senses. Um, at the same time, I never would have guessed, really never, that um, any administration, let alone one headed by someone who I'm not a big fan of would include so many people I know. <laughs> I don't know whether it's like I, I'm the right age now or something, but <laughs> I know people in the Department of Transportation. I, I know, the, you know, a number two, as you do as well at the, in, uh, at the, the State Department. It's strange uh, to me. And um, so it, it's, uh, it's a great uh, time, I think, to be a libertarian because we get to make uh, these arguments based on principle, which means on one, on any given day, including today, I will say, you know, hell yeah to getting through Betsy DeVos, a just an open, in-your-face education reformer who believes in school choice fundamentally, and I do too. Um, hell yes in getting her through and having an education department like that, and then hell no in, you know, uh, banning the travel of, of everybody from uh, seven distressed uh, countries for 90 days in the way that they did that. Um, you know, that's just, that's the life for us. We don't have a natural home. We are critics and gadflies. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs with this. And Donald Trump and Trumpism, which is much bigger than he is, and it's much more than that in just this country, um, is going to be a challenge for everybody's sense of propriety and orthodoxy. And I'd much rather be in a libertarian place analyzing this than in a place that is more housed in a political party, because those political parties are now having to change what they fundamentally believe in. And thank God I do not. And uh, regulations, you think that Trump's actually going to take a hacksaw to them or what? Uh, He seems to be. uh, uh, I mean, it it really is a hacksaw. He passed that executive order saying that for every one regulation we're going to adopt, we're going to kill two. And I know a lot of people who are super anti-regulation who said, well, that just doesn't make any sense, uh, like just as the solution to it. But he's appointing critics of his own place. Uh, The Competitive Enterprise Institute, which is a fundamentally libertarian organization, the most prominent. that's That's Chris Horner's over there, right? We like that guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the 
CEI just, you know, they might as well have moved their office into the White House, which is crazy talk. I never would have expected that, uh, but that's where Trump is at. Part of this is that people have forgotten that George W. Bush, and the left doesn't even know this still, um, that George W. Bush was nobody's friend uh, uh, for the deregulatory uh, part of conservative and libertarian thought. He came in as a compassionate conservative. He boosted regulations much more than Bill Clinton ever did. He doubled the size of the Department of Education, all this kind of stuff. He was going to be the non-Newt Gingrich, bleeding-heart conservative until 9-11 came, and, and, and then everyone got distracted. Uh, so we haven't had, or people who were uh, into deregulation haven't had a friendly administration for their point of view since at least Ronald Reagan. Uh, which is kind of interesting to think about. So there's all this talent and thought and pent-up kind of desire to do things that have been lying around Washington, and Trump went there and picked those people. Uh, so that is, is very, very interesting, uh, much more interesting than I would have expected on Election Day. All right, Matt Welch, our buddy, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, Reason.com. You can read his latest there. Follow him on the Twitter, at Matt what is it? I, 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 I got a, yeah, I'm Matt Welch. All right, just making sure. Yeah, yeah just making sure. I got it. Uh, I got buddy, it. thanks I for coming to hang out. Ruski. Thanks, Buck. Talk to you soon, buddy. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break, and then we're going to be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Is the Buck Sexton Show. So, team, uh, please do tune in tonight uh, for the syndicated show, America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. You can go to AmericanNowRadio.com to listen live or get the podcast. That's the best place to go. I think it's easier than to try to find it on the iHeart uh, Radio app right now. So, just go to AmericanNowRadio.com tonight at 6 Eastern. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen last night, please do go and download the show. AmericanOutRadio.com. And you can, of course, download this show, as always, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Uh, so, got a very fun show planned for you all tonight. Uh, Trump has tweeted out from his account and then from the official POTUS account that my daughter Vanka has been treated so unfairly by Nordstrom. She's a great person, always pushing me to do the right thing. Terrible. Um, Nordstrom has dropped. Ivanka's fashion line under pressure from people that are trying to get uh, boycotts going of anything related to the Trump brand. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised. So Nordstrom has dropped all of Ivanka's fashion line here. This is something you see so commonly uh, on the left, and it, it is really specific to them. They love to do boycotts. And in the case of Ivanka, I just have to say, you know they're really not hurting Ivanka. Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, it's not nice to have somebody drop your fashion line, but they're they're hurting um, whomever Ivanka employs to be designers. Uh, the the people that have picked up the line at different stores to sell it. Um, that's who is really hurt by these kinds of boycotts. Uh, Ivanka is married to a billionaire, and she is the daughter of a billionaire. Dropping her fashion line is not going to do anything in terms of bringing you know bringing her over to your side politically it's not going to punish her financially but it might punish some little people along the way but of course the social justice warriors never care about 
the little little folks who get caught up in the crossfire. But I think it's interesting that that you have the president of the United States uh, letting it rip on Twitter, um, saying that uh, his daughter's been treated unfairly by Nordstrom. I have to say, I think he's right. Uh, so, team, join me tonight, 6 to 9 Eastern, AmericanOutRadio.com, or uh, listen on your local station if we are carried in your market. Uh, we have lists on AmericanOutRadio.com of what those markets are. And until, t- until later tonight, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.